You're listening to an irreverent podcast. For more unholy content from our friends, head to irreverent.fm. Hey friends, welcome to the Speaking in Church podcast. I'm Josie here today interviewing one of my newer friends. Um, yeah, I'll let him be my friend. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> I'm here today with Cameron Bishop. So honored. Who is, I know, so you are a, what is your title? Cognitive, what is it? What do you do? Yeah, so I... I'm executive director for, so I work in cognitive science, but I work specifically with like a team of researchers that like designs and develops and researches around human transformation. So smart cookie. I don't know about (laughs) that, but yes, yes, we have fun with it. And I think your job and your background is interesting when we come to talk about (laughs) church trauma, because you know what's happening in the brain, (laughs) you know what's going on, you know specifically how they break our brains. It's great. It's amazing. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. We, uh, you know, that's, people are coming out of church with, yeah, shattered brains and, you know, specifically like with cognitive science, because cognitive science like focuses a lot more on like awareness, like human awareness. And like the starting point of cognitive science is who am I? Mm -hmm. But we grew up in these systems that, um, that tell us it's really like our own thoughts and feelings and behaviors and the way that we see the world isn't a good thing. And that, I mean, that's just like, so terrible for like mm-hmm. for that brain and for and for development right like we're told that this way of life is going to help us transform um but like the starting point of transformation is a healthy like definition of who you are so yeah i love it before we get into your life story slash testimony slash whatever 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 <laughs> um i want you to tell the people how you came to the deconstruction space because you're um pretty well connected i will say i mean you're friends with super famous mason i mean he's only famous on twitter <laughs> but it counts you've hung out with kevin garcia i want to know how you got just for my own edification as well yeah um oh it's like so it's so random yeah i i adore both of those people that you just mentioned um i think kind of my pathway in because i don't i don't make money off deconstruction um it's not like neither do i yeah right All these, <laughs> I'm ready for that, that, that check. I feel like it should be like an MLM thing, right? Like if I, if I, uh, like I'm deconstructing under someone, so I get residual checks, but no, Amen. I, so kind of my story, like out of, so I worked at a church for eight years and I came into Christianity, like through more perspective, like progressive voices, but not having like any progressive guides. And so I like ended up with an event like evangelicalism, but like I was like, it never, like the the things that like caused most people to deconstruct, like never really sat right with me. Um, And I just sort of tolerated it. And so I think the deconstruction thing was weird because it was a lot of things that I was thinking through, like throughout my entire Christian journey and just started to get like more public about, um, kind of in my mid to late twenties and was also working at a church, um, but wasn't like holding back. And I think I just assume things like Jesus. Yeah. I just assumed that Jesus would like keep me safe. Like as I changed that it would be like that, that concept of like things like Jesus and resurrection would like, allow me to continue to be a part of like the church community and you know and there's like so much deeper thing like there's there's such a deep story to that of like what that means um but like realizing i was never a part of that community like and i was never going to fully belong that like identity markers that i carry were never going to be accepted there and with like my changing beliefs and way of existing um like I found myself getting excommunicated from the church and losing my, my job and just, you know, and like 
and really like being so public in my space caused that. And so one of our friends, Derek Myers, um, Oh yeah. Shout out to Derek. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we went to college together, but we didn't know each other super well. And, okay. And so funny story <laughs> at one point, several years ago, Derek posted a check-in to like a Hillsong church. Oh God like on Facebook of like, I'm here at this church. It's like a, a bit, it's like a Hillsong church in Georgia. And I saw that he posted that and almost unfriended him on Facebook. Like I didn't know him well. <laughs> I was like, I just don't think I'm going to connect with this guy. We're not going to vibe. <laughs> um, yeah. I just, we're not going to be friends. And so, but when he started deconstructing, we started talking a little bit more. And then when I lost my job, I, um, and was like excommunicated, I, um, also got COVID that like the next day and <laughs> insult to injury, like, <laughs> it was just like the worst. Like I, I, I talk about, I was supposed to start a college course that I was teaching that next day and had to like, just be like, I can't show up. And, um, Derek had, we were messaging and he just like stayed on the phone with me that entire week. Cause I'm like quarantining in my room Aww. and just like depressed and crying. And so I think Derek was like kind of that path into that. Like he's the one who introduced me to a lot of these friends, like, um, but also just the internet and Twitter and just, you know, I, yeah, I don't, I don't know how I became friends with such amazing people. I just have, I feel similarly in the sense that like, we just kind of got introduced to these people and all of a sudden, which is like, Oh, people know who these losers are. (laughs) 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 Let's go. I really only feel that way about Mason, but it's fine. (laughs) I'm just kidding. One of my favorite lines was about Mason was when... Oh, I, I don't even know if I should tell this story. I'm going to. We'll just start off strong. <laughs> was, was when we did the Promise Breakers like retreat. Some yeah, like retreat. evangelical guy. The retreat. <laughs> That's right. Some guy like put a like on face like in Twitter to try to like roast us. Was like, I get it. It's called Promise Breakers because they're all about not having sex and you guys have sex. And someone replied, Are we sure Mason Meninga had sex? <laughs> and it was my favorite, like out of that entire thread, it was my favorite <laughs> reply to that. <laughs> I yeah, it's funnier when you know Mason because on Twitter he's like this funny like haha broy type of hmm, whatever, and in person he's just like a little sweet little boy. The sweetest, <laughs> just the sweetest human ever. Yeah. Um. Anyways, enough about Mason. He's not on this podcast. Um. And I don't want him on my podcast. Just kidding. He's been on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> he came on and he was just, I just roasted him the whole time. I couldn't help it. It was so sad. But go listen, everybody, and see how much of a bitch I am. But I want you to tell the story. This is the story that I'm going to forever tell um, that I think is like the solidification of our friendship about the fun discussion group that you led at wild goose. Oh my God. (laughs) Yeah. That's fit. (laughs) Tell the people why we're friends. Tell that story. Oh, Josie, I adore you for this story because, and I've had a lot like looking back, I spent probably way too much time thinking about that moment. And it's become like, (laughs) I think that, I think that story is going to be like a powerful moment in like my story. Like as I like, (laughs) so I signed up to lead a conversation of wild goose. I'd never been, I didn't know anything about it. And our, uh, one of, one of our mutual friends told me actually before I went, Hey, just be careful. Like I know it markets itself as like progressive, like Christian space, but there's a lot of people of color and queer people that have like shown up there and it not been like a safe space for them. And so just be careful and just like be mindful of that and kind of explain some of the ways they thought. And I was like, it can't be that bad. Like, so I went and checked it out 
and I sign up to teach a class and I decide I want to do a discussion. So you can kind of, you can decide to like record a podcast, do a lectureship, like do some kind of music thing, art thing. But in kind of the corner, there's this area where you can decide you can do discussions like conversations. And so it's not like, oh, I'm teaching you something. It's like, no, I'm hosting and facilitating a conversation around mm -hmm. this topic. And I spent a lot of time writing like my course description. And basically what I say is like, Hey, so my brand was like your mystical brain. Um, and what we're going to be talking about is identity development, because that's the starting point for cognitive science mm -hmm. is, is who am I? What's my identity? And so we're going to have a conversation around identity and uh, that's going to include things like culture. That's going to include like yeah, heritage background, like, uh, personality markers, like any identity marker that you can carry, it's going to be around that. And like, write that in my class description. You can still go to the wild goose website, read that class description. <laughs> so I show up and there is a lot of people at my like discussion table, like a pretty significant amount. It was a like, lot oh. of people. It was a lot. Yeah. Yeah. But I think they just read the words, your mystical brain and just like ran with it and didn't read the conversation. And I also think they had been sitting in lectureships all day and assumed that's what it was, even though it was the conversation tent. And it was all, it was, um, a group of like middle-aged white women. And that's important. Like, um, yeah, that's an important part of the story. So it was a group of middle-aged white women and, uh, old white men. And then me and Derek and Josie and, and then your little Amy. friends. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then my friends and, um, during the, the conversation, I hear this like whispering in the background and I just kind of keep hearing, like, I thought this was the mystical brain. I thought this was, and I, I like, I'm hearing it. And, and I actually did like, I did some, some pre-work in the class of being like, here are some participations that we need to agree with, like respect, honesty, language matters, like expect non-closure, shift from debate to dialogue, keep open minds, humble curiosity, like listen to learn and listen with intention and compassion because like, we're going to be talking about identity and this mm -hmm. can get misconstrued. So I even like set that groundwork and this, this person behind me that I'm hearing talk actually showed up like 10 minutes late. Mm -hmm. So, uh, so she's missed a lot of this conversation anyways. Um, and then this, like, so I'm hearing that and I'm kind of feeling this weird energy. And so finally she goes, I'm upset. Like, she, I don't remember exactly what she said. Well, we were talking about how we're reacting to the current conversation and she brought up that she was upset. Yeah. Yeah. And she says, I, I'm upset. And I was like, and I it like caught me off guard. So I kind of turn away, take a breath, turn back around and go, what are you upset about? And she goes, I just like, didn't think we were going to be talking about identity. Like I thought we were going to be talking about like mindfulness meditation and, um, you know, and correct me if I'm wrong, but to me, it, it sounded like she was upset that we were talking about things like how, how people like that we were confronting things like stereotype and bias. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And she did not it, like it. Yeah. It, I mean, and, and like Damon said afterwards, like it was white fragility. Like it was just straight up white fragility. Yep. And even like, and, and something I get a lot, like when I bring up certain like cultural markers about myself, like I get pushed back on it because I don't look how you would think someone who carries his identity looks. And so she like, um, she said that and she was like, I think I need to leave. And I just was like, if you need to leave, leave. And, um, you were very nice had, about it. <laughs> Yeah, I tried to be in, I tried to give her the positive assumption, like had no idea what was going on with her life. And I think if that, if it had ended with there, I would have been fine. But then there was this like old white man who was sitting directly <laughs> across from me. And I just kind of, I turned to the table and I go, Hey, I, I know that was distracting, you know, and if that's how anyone else is feeling like, I like, let's talk about it so that we can kind of move into the conversation. And he just goes, you know, I like, I don't know who you are. And 
you know, like, I thought we were going to be talking about science. <laughs> yeah, I thought we were talking about science and your mystical brain. And as he's talking, I was like, oh, you want me to like teach you something that you can take back to your friends and impress? Like you mm-hmm. want me to give you my my doctorate. Like yep. that's what you want me to give you is my doctorate, my background. I signed up to lead a like I'm losing money being here. To yeah, for real. An, an hour of work, like an hour. And like, I don't say this to brag, but the conversation I'm leading in a corporate setting, it would be 300 per person. Mm-hmm. And like you I'm get paid to do, to do this. This is my job. Like, and, it, but I'm like wanting to give it to these people, this community. And so, you know, and I'm good with pushback, but like his pushback was like, I don't need, so he said, I'm good with identity development stuff. It's like, great, then don't come to this conversation because that's what the class description is. Mm-hmm. And he's like, um, you know, and then he starts mentioning his author friends, like Brian McLaren and like, yeah, he's like, I'm this and I'm that and this and that and blah, blah, blah. And I know this person and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was like the weirdest situation. And it made me feel like I was back in conservative fundamental spaces where old white men were, were gatekeeping and were changing the goalpost and were telling me that the work I did, the voice I carried, the identities I held didn't matter. And that me getting in line was more important than my own authenticity, happiness, and freedom. So, um, I gave up in that conversation and you were there to protect me. And like, I don't say that lightly, but like your, your listeners should know that you really stepped up to protect me in that situation. And, you know, I remember just you explaining, like, this is what I'm hearing. This is what I'm hearing in the conversation and really like helping to kind of land that plane so that I could just get off. And so then I was salty the rest of the day about that. Um, and it, it wasn't just because of that situation, it was just, it was very familiar, mm-hmm. but make it white liberal, you know? Mm-hmm. And it was just hard. And it was like, I don't think people realize like when you are not of like the dominant culture being represented, like how exhausting it is to like, and painful and like, and how much energy you put into like thinking through how do I occur in this situation anyways. And so the next day though, I like, so Damon came, like I told, I told everyone I wasn't going back. I was like, I don't want to do that conversation again. Um, and told everyone I wasn't going back. And the next day, Damon, or that day, Damon was like, you should go back and you should do it again. And like the worst case scenario is that happens again. And, um, and was like, you just clean it up, like clean it up, go back, like practice. Like you're only going to get better if you practice. So I went back and when I showed up, like you had strategically positioned yourself in the seat right next to where I was going to be sitting and like, uh, like all of my friends had shown up and the entire table was people of color and queer people, mm-hmm. like the entire table for that conversation. And it was this beautiful conversation that accomplished the goal that we had. We finished the conversation. Um, I think everybody got insight into it. Everyone was able to really articulate what they were learning. And it was this moment where I realized that like I had tried to find my voice and freedom in a system for so long. And when that system spit me out, it was people of color and queer people that came to rescue me. Mm -hmm. And like, this was just like a parable of that. It, It was the exact same thing that had happened when I got excommunicated was, was like my, my friends, who carried all these amazing identities showed up to rescue me and be like, your, your story is not over yet. Mm. And you can find story on the other side of this, like white fundamentalist culture. Um, and it was like that same kind of parallel of like the day before I was experiencing that same kind of level of like fragility. And then the next day it was like, um, like it, it was, it was redemption. Like it was redemption. So that's a lot. I talked a lot there, but yeah, that was the story. Uh, but I just like, it was so funny when we walked into that class the next day, it was like a pack of wolves, like ready for someone to like, you all were just like waiting for someone to disrupt the class. Like, I wish one of you would like, it was so funny too, because I mean, I'm, I didn't want you to tell that story to toot my own horn. I just think it's a great story, that little redemption, but 
I just thought it was funny because I remember going out of the conversation like, oh, that was fun. I thought it was great. Like, I thought it was going. Blah, blah, blah. Um, and then everybody's like, Josie you did such a good job. Blah, blah, blah. And I was like, oh, I guess I'm really used to fighting with old white guys. <laughs> you went. Yeah. I just like it was total solidarity. And I felt like I genuinely like felt like you were this like guard, like standing next to me with a sword, like just like. Like anyone else want to like, <laughs> well, yeah, I was just, and pretty much what I did was just explain, like, if you don't think that identity star is like the beginning of your brain science and you don't know what the fuck you're talking about, like, this 100%. is the whole, that's the whole point of having a brain is having an identity. But anyways, that's yep. so funny. I think this leads perfectly into you telling us a little bit about your story and telling us how you got to today. Yeah. So I, it's wild that I'm working in the field I'm working in. So for reference, I have, um, so I'm working on my doctor currently. I just kind of, I just switched my program. So I switched from a more science-based program to like a theology-based program, uh, for a few reasons. But, um, I like before that I have a, I have a eighth grade education and past that I've, I have nothing until college. Um, and that's important because when I was, when I was, so I grew up, I grew up in a, like in a home that appeared a lot like my peers, um, but was very different because I was a third culture kid and my dad was a drug addict. So my dad was raised in Southeast Asia and my mom was raised in what's considered Indian territory, Oklahoma. Um, and when I was five, we moved to Atlanta, Georgia, and I was in, in, on my street that I initially lived in. I was the only non-Islamic kid on that street. Um, and Honestly, that so sounds amazing. Around. It was, it was so cool. And it like, they welcomed us so well and were so hospitable and just, it was like a, it was a bunch of refugees from Libya and Ooh, the they, food. <laughs> it was incredible yeah and so we moved on october 7th 1995 and by halloween they had us in their house for for dinner oh my god and like had, yeah and like made us these like little packs of like baklava and like we're just like oh, yeah they were god. incredible they were incredible neighbors but it you know part of that thing was i was raised around so many cultures and so many people with cultures and had absolutely no idea what my own was and, um, and, you know, even like in middle school, I went to it, like I went to an international school in Atlanta. So I was like one of the few students there whose like parents had been actually like, so my mom was one of the teachers there. So that's why I went. Um, but I like was one of the few students there who, whose parents were actually f like from the U S mm -hmm. and had been here for, for a while. And so it was, you know, just kind of an identity crisis anyways. And we were, we went to church. Um, it was, it was more of like kind of a, like a cultural thing. Like my parents wanted to go to church. So we went to church. We were like fairly involved. Um, but my dad was kind of in and out of the picture. So using, you know, he, he was a drug addict and would, would relapse and would go to halfway houses, rehabs, like all those things, my entire childhood, um, and then when I was 14, he had a really bad relapse and it was kind of like my mom's last straw and in an effort to kind of heal our family and mold, I was just kind of forgotten about and able to like drop out of school and just spend four years like skateboarding and like just kind of wandering the streets of Atlanta, Georgia, and just kind of doing whatever, like working jobs, like, you know, reading a lot. Um, but I have an eighth grade education and, um, and at the time the church we were going to was all wealthy, like, like middle upper class, like wealthy white people. Um, and I think they considered themselves to be a more progressive church, but, it, it was a like they were very othering and they also centered themselves themselves in in our stories and so for me like i was i was raised in this this place and they started this like drug recovery ministry like and my dad like was kind of a part of it 
And so because of that, I was one of the recovery kids, but also we had already been going to that church. And so I was like led into these meetings where they would like talk with us and be like, Hey, these are some of the policies we're going to set up to protect um, you all from these recovery kids. They're going to be integrating into the youth group. And it was like, well, like I'm one of those kids. And it's like, well, wh- no, no, you're not. Because it was like, well, like, why am I not one of them? Like my home looks like their home looks like my dad's a mm. drug addict. My dad's in the recovery ministry. Why am, why am I not one of them? Like, these mm. are my people. And when they would, you know, this was a story that affected me. Like I'm 14 years old and my dad is my, my dad, I'm the oldest man in my house and, and addiction is tearing my life apart. And I'm hearing my mom wonder like how she's going to pay for groceries that night. And that's my story. But when the church would market like this drug recovery, like initiatives to like the church, they would always center themselves of like, look at the amazing work we're doing to help these families out. And they used our stories as marketing material for themselves. And I think I developed this idea. If I can learn to talk articulately enough and speak the language, then someday I'll have a seat at the table and I won't be an other anymore. Um, and that day just like never came, like no matter what I like denied and changed about my story and my history that day, just like, it just never came. Like there was never a moment. Like I remember one time in youth group, like a girl's purse went missing and, um, I found out it was another kid who was in their covering, whose parent was in their cover ministry that took it. And so I asked him where it was. I went and I got it and I returned it. And I said like, Hey, I found it in the bathroom. Like, um, and the youth pastor like publicly accused me of stealing it. Oh, hell no. You know, I'm just like, and like, sir, like publicly accused me of stealing it and then search two of my black friends who were with me. Um, oh, hell no. Yeah. <laughs> and it was like, okay, but we're like good enough to be your marketing material, but like, you don't, you clearly don't trust us. And then mm. like, you know, and even things like, I remember going to church camps and like being desperate for a the, the, like the, the male counselors, like attention, like these adult men. Um, and I internalized that as like, Oh, this is my ego. This is sin. And if I could fix that in me, then I wouldn't need, I wouldn't be desperate for their attention, but I was desperate for it because I was 14 years old and I was the oldest man in my house. And I saw these men as something that I wanted and it wasn't sin in me. It was actually their lack of approachability and trauma informed awareness. That was the sun. Right. And, you know, and so, you know, spiritual spaces, like especially where children are going to be, should be equitable. And Mm. I didn't have the language to say that. Like, I didn't have the language to say like, although we're all having the same experience here, this isn't an equitable space. It's an equal space, but it's not equitable. I am someone who, who is, um, I am someone who is hurting and who has some real carnage of life stuff going on. And I need, I need a little bit more. I need something a little bit different than what you're offering to the, like to the rest of the people here. So, so growing up and realizing like that, that day never come of like an equitable, safe space. Like it really developed in me, like a desire to see people like to tell people like you can and will flourish, like you're safe in this system and you're understood and you're included. And so that's kind of why I do like the work that I do is because I want to make sure that like any system that's, that's youth facing, um, is Trump is trauma informed and creates a, a, an environment where a student regardless, not regardless through their identities can thrive in this world. Yeah. I'm reminded of this one time I was in a youth group at a Baptist church as a predominantly white, um, Baptist church, but the youth pastor for the middle schoolers, the, this is the part what I was participating in was a Latin person. So I thought, you know, get to me a little bit. But I remember it was Wednesday and it was like a particularly bad night at my house and there's a lot of abuse going on physically and I left the house and thought I could run to youth group and have a safe space in youth group. And my dad was worried. He didn't know where I was. So he came to the church to see if I was there because he knew that I would go on Wednesday nights and lo and behold they're like she's in trouble she can't be here she's not allowed to be here or whatever and i said 
I don't feel safe at home. Like I'm being beaten. Like I, I want to mm. be here. I want some space. And I remember this youth pastor saying, you know, that we teach absolute obedience in this youth group. So you have to go home with your parents. And I remember feeling so demoralized and so unsafe. And honestly, I don't know if I've even forgiven him for that because I think like I could have avoided so many more years of abuse if you had fucking said something. Because my right. parents aren't going to listen to cops, like, or and the cops weren't listening to me either, and they didn't care about what the school had to say. Like, but you are a church figure. They listen to church figures. You could have intervened, and I could have been saved so much heartache if you had just dealt with the situation as you're supposed to do as a church person right like also church people are mandated reporters like all this stuff and after that it was just never the same i felt like wow i felt betrayed and rightfully so i was betrayed by a church that was supposed to keep me safe and i just think that that's too often the story that people like us have yeah oh my gosh that breaks my heart jesse because that's like yeah, you hear that story time and time again where these spaces aren't trauma-informed and they say we're welcoming and all-inviting, but mm-hmm. they're not set up to empower. You felt what you saw was representation, right? Like mm-hmm. there is someone that looks like you there, but the space wasn't set up to empower either of you. Mm-mm. And And that's kind of, you know, with me of like, I'm in a space like all of the elders and pastors are old, powerful white men. The preacher at this church, um, at North Atlanta Church of Christ, you know, claims like has written books on like racial reconciliation and has written books on like advocating for the marginalized and lives in a mansion in Dunwoody, Georgia. And like his kids all go to private school. And so it's like, those are the people that are like, we're looking to Mm -hmm. to advocate for us and we're not seeing anyone that looks like us or has the background that we have in Mm -hmm. those spaces. And it, and and it makes it like, they don't like, they just don't have the tools like in an old rich man, just who has been through nothing, who has not lived the story that I've lived uh, does not have the tools to create the environment that 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 fourteen year old Cameron's going to thrive in, and he should not be profiting off of it either. Of trying to be this whatever, like he should not be writing those books. Right. It's kind of like right. I went to APU, and this theology professor at APU wrote a book called Trap Theology. <laughs> Jesus Christ. On the cover is this beautiful black woman and the author is a straight up white lady. <laughs> oh my God. How are you going to tell me about trap theology? <laughs> and not even me. How are you going to tell a black person about trap theology? Uh, trap theology. Also, what a title. Trap theology. What? <laughs> yeah, I just like... <laughs> Oh my God. Like <laughs> no one along the way was like, Hey, I got a suggestion. Fully <laughs> Don't do pub- this. ready to publish. <laughs> yeah. I can't, I cannot with the audacity of some of these white people. But I think, yeah, I remember when I was a youth group leader and lots of people telling those of us who were in it, um, there's only a few of us, but we were like, you're like, you guys go above and beyond for your youth kids. And we were in Azusa and um, Azusa is predominantly Latin and our kids were like low socioeconomic status. And I was the only Mexican person there. and All of my kids were Mexican or Latin. And it was, it was just so funny. Like all the things that I remember just not feeling like doing as a youth group leader, like I'm not gonna tell you not to have sex one of our kids was 18 and pregnant and i was like that's fine like i'm not gonna kick you out of church for being 18 and pregnant and so i just taught them safe sex and the emotional repercussions of sex and all this stuff and they we would pick them up from school sometime or we would take them out to dinner because they were hungry and it's all this stuff that's just kind of normal to me and then it hits you like this would not have been our youth group experience should we have needed any of this. Right. And it no. doesn't feel like 
excessive. Like, yeah, my kid wants a Frappuccino, and I don't want to pay $6 for a Frappuccino, but the kid wants a Frappuccino! And just because I wouldn't pay for it myself because I don't like it doesn't mean that the kid can't have it or they want McDonald's or all this. I don't know. It's just when you become an adult and you think back to your childhood, especially when you grew up in an evangelical church, you're like, what the fuck were these people doing? Like, Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I went like, you know, I mean, like I had a tweet go viral recently where I just said, hey, my youth pastor like one time pretended to be dead. And oh my god um and, and it resonated with like that was the scariest part about it was like the entire like i had like eighty thousand likes and there were so many comments where people are like oh yeah i saw that too like oh i had a similar story like oh i also had a youth a youth minister like who pretended to be dead and you know, that's that like, that's what you talk about, right? Of like that Frappuccino, that McDonald's, like those things that show a kid, like you are valued in this space and you're understood and you're included and you're in a system that will protect you. Mm -hmm. The problem is we were not in a system that would protect us. And, and it would be like, you know, we, I think for me, like I carried a lot of that of like, this is a me problem. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't, I was a child. It was a system problem. The system was the problem. And, um, yep. and I don't want that to happen. To, I don't want that to happen to any other kid. Like I just, I just, I don't no. want that to happen. I just like, I think this is actually funny. It's not so funny, but it's funny for me. But this one time our kids were playing hide and seek and the kid is like, we have a balcony and you can step over the railing and there's the roof. So the kid's on the roof they were not allowed to be on the roof right we were gonna deal with it but then some white guy from the church the church that had nothing to do with the youth group they really were not very supportive um he's like yelling at my kid and cursing at my kid Hmm. and i'm like seething with rage because this guy's like well insurance and liability and blah blah and i remember saying like I'm going to handle the fucking kid. All right. He's not allowed to be up there, but don't talk to my kid. Like he's an adult. Don't talk to my kid that way. Cause then you're going to have an issue with me and trust me, white guy, you do not want to have a fucking issue with me. And it was right. just this whole situation that we had to like sit down with the people of the church and say, this is unacceptable. And you will never talk to our kids that way ever again. Yeah. Cause they're children. But because they're brown, they're treated as adults. How is that? If some white kid was up there, you wouldn't talk to him like that. And I can guarantee that. No. It's. Yeah. Mm -mm. Yeah. If they don't represent who we are, like the culture that we're, we're in, like it, like it's so easy to just like dehumanize children Mm -hmm. and just like think, you know, cause even for, for me, like as an adult, like I'm petty sometimes, like I've grown up and become successful. And I'm not mm-hmm. a kid anymore. And when I interact with people that I feel like treated me certain ways because they felt like they could get away with it because my dad was not a rich pastor at the church mm-hmm. um, because my dad wasn't someone who tithed a bunch of money. Um, people who made my mom, who is a highly educated woman who, who went through it all and survived and is mm-hmm. still here. Like, when, when they have made her feel less than for, for who she was, who she had children with, you know, I'll see those people as an adult. And like, I find myself like really finding ways of reminding them like, Hey, I'm still here and I'm not a kid anymore. Mm-hmm. And you need to remember this because these kids that you're still interacting with, you know, like these kids that you're still interacting with, um, they're also going to grow up and they're not going to be kids, you know, because I actually, I think the system killed a bunch of my friends. Like mm. I, I have a bunch of friends that didn't survive and yep. have, you know, drug overdoses and, and suicide and, you know, I, I wonder had that space been more trauma informed and more equitable, like if we wouldn't have had to bury so many of them, you know? And so I think it's a good reminder for, for people like these are, these are children, these are children. Yeah. Like I feel oftentimes the evangelical church is so unwilling to take responsibility for the part that they had to play in lots of people's downfalls. And I mean, it's apparent in like the gay community, right? 
Right. It's absolutely an atrocity. But then sometimes I feel like we forget the kids of color or the kids who didn't have money or the kids who were made to feel less than because their parents were whatever, whatever, whatever. Like you're contributing to their downfall just as much because of the things that are coming out of your mouth and because of the way that you're treating people differently because kids notice they know who your favorite is they know that you don't want to deal with the kid who has a drug addict parent they know that you're searching this kid because he's black and no other reason yeah like kids are more perceptive than the church wanted to give us credit for yeah i i remember at youth group one time a uh, a, like a grown man yelling at me mm-hmm. and wondering why, like, just like sitting there, like degrading me and wondering like, why can he yell at me? Like, why is he yelling at me and realizing, Oh, cause he knows no one's coming to protect me. Yep. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. exactly it. Yeah. And I mean, not all of us have the ability or not all of us have the fortune to learn how to protect ourselves. I mean, it's hard it's a hard process and lots of people can't for whatever reason but i'm curious now that you're mr science guy what do you see as the like cognitive and mental repercussions of growing up the way that we did i know we've talked about it a little bit but like what is the actual like science behind what happens to our brains yeah yeah. So from like the cognitive science side of things, like it's, it's an, it's an identity crisis, right? So when we're in an environment that is not I'm trying to think of like kind of the best way to like, maybe start that, like, so I'll put it this way. Like when we're in an environment that is like first and foremost, like deficit based. And so it's like, I'm going to like, like I'm going to focus on this kid's like deficits. Um, that kid's never going to thrive in that environment. Right. And they're never going to have a healthy sense of their identity instead of focusing on their, uh, like on their assets. Like, what are these kids? Like, what is, what is this kid's strengths? Like, what are the things that this kid has to offer to the world that like no one else has to offer to the world? Um, so there's that side of things of like, when we're, we're doing that, right. Or like when we have like an avoidant mindset, when like, I'm going to avoid things like gender and ethnicity and race and age and disability and socioeconomic status and background and story. And we're going to overlook those things. And we're just going to commit to like treating everyone fairly over recognizing that like students experiences matter, that kids experiences matter. And those identity markers matter instead of having like an awareness mindset of I'm going to acknowledge the differences and the roles that that plays in our kids, uh, the, the roles kids demographics play in the church setting or in the trauma setting, or if like they're context neutral, right. Where they're just going to say like what happens outside of the church is irrelevant to what's going on inside the church instead of being like context centered and saying like, no, these experiences and these communities affect these students' experiences when they come into the church. So, so all that, right? If we're, if we have a deficit-based mindset, if we're avoidant and if we're context neutral, what that tells the kid is that they are loosely connected to the community while being told this community is the most important thing in the universe. This church is the most important thing in the universe. You know, I'm and so like, oh. <laughs> I mean, like, think about that. Like a developing brain is having those two things of like, they're in a community that is, is it is focused on their deficits. It's avoiding who they are. It's avoiding things like their gender, their ethnicity, their race, their age, their disabilities, their socioeconomic statuses, their stories. And it is just neutral to the context they're living in. And at the same time saying this community determines if you like if your life matters or not and that is like it breaks the brain like it's an identity crisis they they don't trust themselves they don't trust the people around them they have no idea why they do what they do uh and they're um and, and and ultimately like they they go on to live lives of, of fear and shame and and guilt and pain and a lot of people don't survive and i have a lot of friends that didn't survive that and i like 
I know that that could sound dramatic, but like, I actually think that that led to like several of my friends dying is being like in context like that, that just didn't know what to do with their pain. Well, yeah, they Um, had nowhere, they had no community to help them through it. Right. Yeah. And then they were just grown up and, and they didn't know know, how to then build it because they were never taught ever. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's so bad for the brain, but like the flip side of that is if like, if, if communities can be, it can focus on assets, can be aware of these students, genders, race, disabilities, ethnicities, socioeconomic status, like can be aware of their stories and can center their context and say what's happening on the outside of this building matters inside of this building. And we're going to be equitable in how we treat you. The opposite of that is that uh, students are going to be aware that their differences are understood and appreciated and that they are in a system that will look after them. And so there's like a flip side to that too, of like we can develop like healthy personalities Mm. and like people who their thoughts, they trust their thoughts and feelings. And so I'm just like getting emotional um, because I needed someone to show up and do that for me and they never came. Honestly, I'm getting emotional too. Oh God. (laughs) yeah it's hard right like it's because i needed that i needed to be in a system that said like we're gonna look after you while you're here we understand you and we appreciate you and you know we just we grew up and we lose all sets of authenticity and i don't feel like i was truly living my authentic self until i was like almost 30 years old like Mm. um and i'll tell you kind of a beautiful story because when right when i left kind of left the church um as like a kid when it was like oh i'm leaving this church the church that i was at hired this this youth pastor uh who has like since left because of a lot of these same reasons and having these experiences has done a lot of work around cultural competency and development Mm. and i was explaining this to him a couple like months ago and he started crying on the phone with me and goes cameron i wish i could have been for you the youth pastor that you're helping me become, mm. you know? And so, so it's not, so you ask what it does to the brain. It, it, it fucking breaks the brain and mm. it kills kids. That's what it does is it, it breaks the brain. It takes away our sense of identity. It takes away our empowerment. We don't feel like we belong. We feel like we're having to try to fit in. Uh, we don't know how to answer. Who am I? We don't know how to answer. Who are those around me? We don't know how to answer why we do what we do. And ultimately we don't know what influence and impact we can actually have on the world. The flip side of that is there are ways of being adults that will allow kids to know who they are, Mm. know who those are around him, know why they do what they do and ultimately know how they can live the life that they want to design for themselves. They're, they're like, there's a flip side to that, right? This can break the brain, but also this can develop a healthy brain, a healthy personality and a healthy person with a really generative life. Mm. Mm. I'm, oh, I'm getting really emotional because I did come out on the positive end of that right but then i think like fuck like it could have been so easy for me to just especially as somebody who does struggle with depression like i could it could have been over like that could have been it for me if it had not been for and i'm so great i mean i'm feeling an immense amount of gratitude because i did have outside of church walls which is stupid right like i did have these adults in my life who helped me succeed like and to some people it seems pretty dramatic and i mean it is like my i volunteered in the library and in the college and career center at my high school and those two women who headed up those offices they helped me develop as a human being they helped me figure out my opinions they stayed late with me at school if i didn't want to go home they bought me dinner if they knew i was hungry because i i they were safe and i confided in them like yeah oh when my mom is mad at me she doesn't feed me and without making it a deal they're like oh we're ordering from here what do you want like we got it just knowing that they were providing a safe space and that no matter what i was not going to go hungry that day and when it came to college they helped me apply to schools they helped me get a full ride to apu and when it came down to the wire and i needed 300 bucks for the deposit that i couldn't get waived and they were like fuck that you were paying for this 300 bucks because that's unacceptable that you're 300 away from a better life and honestly i 
and ever since then i've had all of these like parental figures who have invested in my life because for whatever reason they thought that i was worth it and then i get sad thinking like why would i think that it wasn't worth it like everybody is worth that effort everybody is worth investing in and it was the church that taught me that because I wasn't obeying my parents, because I wasn't this or that or this type of way, that I wasn't worthy of being invested in. That's what I was taught in the church. But it was outside of the church where people were like, fuck that. And that's not the way it should be, according to the gospels or whatever. <laughs> yeah. It's not, you know, even when, when we were excommunicated, my son, who was seven at the time had kids approach him and say, we're not allowed to play with you anymore. You know, because I'm ready to fight somebody right now. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It was the, the, the preacher at the church that we were at, uh, approached his kids approached my kid our last Sunday there and said, we're not allowed to play with you anymore. Um, you know, and that's, that's not the way it should be in, in any environment for, for any, no. for any kid in a, in a perfect world, any, any person, especially marginalized people should be able to have their kids go into spiritual spaces and not feel like they're going to lose themselves. Mm-hmm. But that's not the case. I don't trust, you know, we have, we have found a spot. We have an amazing children's children's pastor at this church and, she's, um, you know, she's queer herself. And so like, we just, we trust, we trust a lot of the stuff that she's, she's teaching because she's teaching out of an identity, understanding what it's like to not belong in certain spaces. Um, but I don't trust, I don't trust like white, like evangelical Christians around my children. Mm -mm. Um, and in a perfect world, like maybe we could, but like, it's just not, you know, you talk about that. Cause for me, it's that, it's that same thing of like Dr. Susan Reese, who, you know, is, a, is, is a woman, she's, she's a widow. And she was the first person in my life to tell me like, it was good to be Cameron. And, you know, I have, I have an amazing mom. Like I have an incredible mom who like always just leaned into like this kid's destined for something different. Let's just kind of see what happens. Mm. Um, but it was never the evangelical church mm. that were affirming me. It was, it was the people like the, the refugees, the Libyan refugees in my neighborhood that invited me over for Halloween. It was, mm. it was people like you showing up to sit next to me and say like, Hey, regardless of how this conversation goes, I'm riding with you. Like, mm. you know, it was people like, you know, Damon pulling me aside and saying, do it again, try it again, try it again. Um, you know, it's people like my, my mentor, like Ramon Pastrano, like who, who's from the Dominican Republic, um, coming here and giving me an opportunity to study what I'm passionate about. It was, it was never, it was never the system that said that we were going to succeed in it. It was, mm. the, it was the marginalized groups outside of the system that said, we have a place for you. I think, you know, like our mutual friend, Damon Garcia, like says that like the oppressed are the only people that can free themselves. And then as a mm. result, they're able to free the oppressors. Mm. Totally been my experience. Yep. hundred percent been my experience. Mm-hmm. I agree. I'm like thinking through, we're starting up a children's and youth ministry at our church. Cause we didn't have room and now we have room. Um, and we've invested a lot of money and time into building a space for these kids. So I'm a, I'm a type of bitch that doesn't like to just complain without solutions. So what are some sure. solutions that we can offer for people who are hoping to create newer types of ministries? Like what should we keep in mind when we're developing programming for children with all yeah. of this cognitive repercussions in mind? Yeah. So safety is the most important thing in when you're dealing with children, like mental safe, safety, physical safety, spiritual safety. Safety is the most important thing when you're, when you're dealing with children, like, will, will they be safe? Like it precedes education. It precedes mm-hmm. like creeds. It precedes behavior. It's mm-hmm. like, it's, it's safety. How do we keep these kids safe? And so for me, like that little twist of like, Hey, we're trying to figure out how to keep the, our kids safe from the drug addicts kids. You know, um, the twist there is like, Hey, these kids are going through some real life stuff 
and they're coming into a community that knows something very painful about their story. How, what, what are the ways that we can ensure that these children are safe when they get here, mm. that they have room to, to grieve, that they have room to have conversations about these things that we, they have room to connect. Um, so I think like safety, um, equity is important. Mm. So equity acknowledges and values cultural differences and it considers factors like privilege and opportunity in like students academic or in students like, like spiritual, like spiritual life. Uh, it, it even looks at things like academic performance. Like, do we yeah. want to like ensure these students can succeed outside of the church? Like in the, like if they're mm. hungry, we tell them like they want to have a, like a better future, but if they're hungry, they can't go to school. Yep. Um, so how do we eliminate things like hunger? Uh, you know, we eliminate things like equality, right? Equality just assumes that we're all the same. Mm. And it's one size fits all. And that's how a lot of youth ministries are run. Um, but equity, it's going to acknowledge those differences. And it's, you know, like I said earlier, right? Like we're going to be asset based. We're going to like, I think the first thing you do the moment you meet a student is start looking for their strengths mm. and the things they're good at and affirming them and empowering them. Right. And you become aware of their story. Right. Mm. I and mean, it's kind of like, you know, you've talked a lot about like accessibility in the church. Yeah it's really similar. Like, are these spaces accessible for children to develop, you know? Mm. And I like, for me, some of the things that I would have wanted, I wish, I wish there would have been an avenue for, for me to be approached, um, and, and listened to about like the things that I was feeling and to be told, like, it's okay to be feeling those things. Like I'm wondering like why my dad chose drugs over me. Like I'm, that's, that's what I'm dealing with. Mm -hmm. And the only avenue to talk about that had an agenda of mm. like, of, of like, well, we need you to see theologically how this lines up. Mm -hmm. um, but it would have been great to just have someone hear me like say that out loud, um, like connection and relationship. Like, you know, every kid is one adult away from being a success story mm -hmm. uh, and, and representation and connection, right? Like you walk into that youth group, you see, you, you see someone that looks like you and you feel like connected, but are like, are we, are we using people who have the same identities that, that we have? Mm -hmm. Like if you're, if you're a youth group and you're saying like, we're queer affirming, like, but you don't have any like queer youth workers, like that's probably that's a problem right like yep. that yeah I, i'm rambling at this point because i'm just i'm so excited about this but i i do think really being that asset-based awareness-based like context-centered like allows us to to invite students into a collective where they're going to be safe and understood mm. uh, i love this i think we could talk about this probably for a million years but I am so grateful for you and your expertise. Um, tell the people if you have anything to plug, whether it's personal or you have a charity or something else. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't have anything, a ton of stuff to plug. I mean, you're welcome to like Google me and figure out some of the work that we're doing. Um, you know, I work for an organization called IL, um, Impact Lives, and we're a center for like social transformation. So we like design and facilitate uh human transformation experiences Ooh, churches um, so should hire y'all <laughs> church yeah they should hire us like mm -hmm. would be, yeah we haven't done a lot of work with churches but i do feel like there would be room there but yeah basically what we do is we help um we help organizations create like particularly youth facing organizations. So I specifically work with youth facing organizations, uh, help them create spaces where their students can belong, um, where they can be included and understood and where they can be safe. And we do, we design, we, we it's called human centered design is kind of the, the tool we use, like for any of you other nerds out there. Um, <laughs> but we, we go through a very long process and we, you know, we, we demand a lot of our clients, um, mm. in terms of time and energy and, and we have seen it really pay off. Like, mm. um, so you're welcome. You know, you can, I'm, I'm Cameron Bishop. Like I think Cameron L Bishop or something on all of my, I'm the worst, like follow at, him on Twitter. Him. Yeah. Cameron L Bishop on all social media platforms. If you're curious, like 
shoot me a message. If you're a troll or a jerk, like I'm probably going to just ignore you. But if you like actually have a <laughs> conversation, like, <laughs> you know, shoot me a DM and yeah, I don't know what to, I don't have anything to plug. I'll, I'll say I just finished our friend Damon Garcia's book. And I think it's one mm. of the, the most important books I've ever read. Mm. And so I just like, I'll, I'll plug that. Like if you're like at the end of this podcast yeah. or like, I want to buy something like go buy Damon's book. It's so damn important. Like it's the guy so who writes, good. it's an incredible book. Yeah. Honestly, it's yeah, pretty it, ridiculous. It's yeah. Because I feel like, Oh, this is my friend. So I want to read my friend's book. And then you're here and you're just like, is this like really as good as I think it is? Or is this just my friend? But then you're just like, no, this is good shit. It's so important. It is yeah. one of the most, it, it is I would say it is the, I, I'm just going to, I'm going to make a bold statement. It's the most important Christian book I've read in my adult life. Mm, yeah. Like it's, it is that important of a book. People like people need to read that book. If you are a Christian and you are devoted to liberation and and loving your neighbor like this is a really important book to read yeah. and it's very accessible i will say that somebody who reads a lot um it's a pretty easy read like he just he really keeps it for the people you know the language is not like a lot of these theology books that are like transubstantiation and blah 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 blah, blah. it's like very accessible it's very easy to read we're obsessed with it. I mean, I'm pretty, yeah. I, the whole fucking thing is highlighted. I highlight like every other sentence. Same. It's truly, Same. yeah, very approved by us. Yeah, I love it. Yeah. Well, friends, um, as always, you can find Speaking at Church at Speaking in Church in, uh, uh, on Instagram. And that's it. You can contact us there. You can find me at Josie Takes the World. Um, yeah, stay woke or get woke. Uh, bye. <laughs> this has been an irreverent media podcast